Olaso. So Danny, I understand we're having a bit of problem with the Mac Mini. So I've been in correspondence with Sungay. We'll solve it very quickly. Okay. We'll get a new one. Okay. In fact, maybe you and I can just speak really quickly, just to look at logistics, whether it's easier for you to buy one here and we embrace you, or whether Sungay orders one. So you and I can talk really quick, yeah, afterwards. Very good. Olaso. So let's just go directly into the practice.
Omahum Medaguru Pemesirium to change your posture, please do so now. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural states, your respiration in its natural rhythm, as we've done before. And then as you engage in the preliminary exercise of mindfulness of breathing, I encourage you this time to ground your awareness in the earth element where your body is in contact with the ground. Let the space of your awareness be filled with the tactile sensations throughout the body. Rather like taking a a glass vial or a glass jar, completely filling it with air, so there's no room left, totally saturated, permeated with air, as the space of your awareness is totally permeated with these tactile sensations throughout the body, So there's no room for thoughts, for mental chattering, mind wandering, because the whole space of your awareness is already full. There's no space, there's no entry for mental chit-chat. Your awareness is filled with these non-conceptual appearances, the sensations throughout the body. And then quietly attend those sensations related to the breath.
And now withdraw your awareness from the space of the body, from the tactile sensations that fill that space. And as if you were evacuating that jar filled with air, so it's totally empty when all the air is taken out, evacuate the space of your mind. leaving only the luminosity of your own awareness. With no object, letting your eyes be at least partially open, your gaze, your awareness resting vacantly in the space in front of you without even taking space itself as an object. And rest for a little while, resting your awareness in its own natural luminosity, its lucidity, its cognizance, without meditating on anything, simply sustaining this flow of mindful presence in the present moment, without distraction or without grasping. Now direct your awareness straight up into the sky, into the space above you, as far as your awareness can reach, but with no target, no object, into an object, objectless, open expanse, and rest there.
and simply rest your awareness in its own place. And extend your awareness out into the space to your right with no object, no target, as far as your awareness can reach.
and let your awareness rest in its own place. Extend your awareness out into the space to your left, as you've done before. Seeing that your respiration continues to flow unimpededly, effortlessly, without in any way being forced or constrained by your mind.
And let your awareness rest right where it is, in stillness without wavering. Release your awareness into this objectless, open expanse below.
let your awareness rest right where it is, with no object and with no subject, simply present. So for a number of you, at least on occasion here in Phuket, in our retreat, from given reports when we meet, there are occasions when you try to do this practice, any of the variations of shamatha without a sign, and you know what to do, you know how to do it correctly, and you just can't. The mind is just so cluttered, so full, so agitated, they're just being stormed by obsessive compulsive ideation, and uh, it's frustrating. It's frustrating because you know what to do. You know it, you know how it goes when it goes well, and you're doing your best, and your best is just utterly inadequate. It just it's not happening, and so you're sitting there, and just the, the mind is rambling on, rambling on, carrying you all over the place, and you may very wonder, well, wonder why am I doing this? This is just sitting here with my mind wandering, and for people who are listening by way of podcasts, living socially engaged way of life, a lot of activities, a lot of obligations. Uh, you may find this occurs as well. So what to do? I think it's very important not to make a habit of frustration in one's meditative practice. It's very easy to do. Very easy. I know well. To be trying something and just not succeeding, not succeeding, not succeeding, and then just feeling, you know, I can't do this. I'm a I'm a loser, I'm just incapable, this is too hard, or maybe, maybe, it's the medi- medi- maybe it's the meditation, maybe that's no good. And so what to do on those occasions, if that still happens to you? If you, do- if you don't, then just settle your mind as natural state for a while, and I'll finish soon. <laughs> yeah, don't mind me. But when that happens, what I would suggest is that it's not just your mind that's disturbed, it's your whole prana system that's disturbed. Because it really, your mind has nothing to say, you know, it's just filling. It's just filling the space with chatter. Usually, it has no agenda, no no insights, no message, no nothing. Just blah 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 blah. 
And I would suggest this is kind of a symptom of your whole prana system just being in a state of turbulence, imbalance, and it's bubbling up in terms of this close interrelationship between your prana system, or call it your nervous system, and your mind. It's just bubbling up in all of this flow of obsessive ideation. So, what to do? And what I would suggest is this. Supine position. Supine position. And if you haven't mastered it, I'd say work on it. To be able to rest in the supine position, in the shavasana, without spacing out, without falling asleep, getting drowsy, and so forth, is a really, really worthwhile skill to develop. It's worth the time. When I trained very intensively with Iyengar, B.K.S. Iyengar, the great yoga teacher, the late, he just recently passed away a few days ago. I trained with him for a short time, only about two and a half months, but I was in his yoga ashram there in Pune and practicing about five hours a day. And he was giving me some fair amount of personal attention because of my peculiar body. And he made the comment, I think to everybody, but um, I remember a comment he made to me too, but he made comment, I think it was generally, he said, you can't meditate. You're not ready to meditate until you've mastered Shavasana. Sound familiar? Shavasana doesn't mean can you lay your body down like a corpse. Corpses can do that. Right? It's, it's more than that. It is indeed adopting the posture, and he taught it with all the precision that he taught the much more so-called advanced asanas. But the whole idea is you're totally present. You're totally clearly present while the body is in a state of utter relaxation. And you're maintaining that presence of awareness throughout that shavasana. It's not just putting your body this way or that way. It's also a quality of awareness. Having said that for shavasana, and we have an expert yoga teacher, at least one here, that's true for all of the other asanas, right? It's not just this, 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 you know, moving your arms this way or legs this way. It's a, in the true yoga tradition, which is one heck of a lot more than mere physical exercise. This is a spiritual practice. And so mindful yoga, there's a lot of emphasis in the Vipassana group and so forth. Mindful yoga, mindful yoga. Well, that's all very well, but by the way, it was already intended to be mindful yoga. This isn't something the Buddhists invented. Like the Hindus are all just sitting there with their minds going crazy, doing funny things with their bodies, whereas that somehow the Buddha invented mindfulness. That's crazy. It's ridiculous. You know, this basic mindfulness, that was known in India thousands of years before the Buddha came along. Just to somehow think that you know, bare attention, mindfulness is somehow, somehow uniquely Buddhist. There's no basis in reality whatsoever. It's silly. Right. So that's what, he, that's what he told everybody. Before you can meditate, he had a very, a very gradual, very path-like approach to his understanding of the, of the, yoga, the, yoga, the yoga system. And that is the ethics. He didn't talk about it a lot, but it's there. Yama niyama, ethics. Avoid this, adopt this. Ethics is foundation, as it is in Buddhism, Christianity, and so on. Then the asanas, then the pranayama, and then you move more into the meditative mode. All very sequential, very... I mean, it's a time-tested, brilliant system of meditative practice to develop samadhi. <laughs> and then I remember, I, was, I think I was in, in Shavasana. I was a monk at the time. This was 1981. I was a monk at the time, practicing for about 10 years. And he came over to me, laying in Shavasana, said, and he said, I suppose you meditate a lot. <laughs> I don't know what he meant by that, but, but kind of, you know. All right, so Shavasana, but that's not enough. The mind is just filled with this, like, I just came from Scotland, midges. Midges, I mean, right, midges or 
gnats or whatever, midges, that's what they are in Scotland. It just fills the space, you know, in, in, these, uh, you know, in the highlands of Scotland. Uh, just these little all over the place. It's just like that, isn't it? When your mind is just filled with these little swarms of gnats kind of biting at you and irritating you and pulling every which way. And so, if you have a space full of midges, well, bring in something else that pushes them all out. So the analogy is going to break down there, but I'm going to go back to the earlier analogy. And that is you have a jar, like, like a chemist. Fill it totally with air or with water, but fill it with something. So it's filled to the brim, right? Basic, basic deal. Happens all the time in physics. You filled it completely, right? So now there's no space for anything else. Whether you filled it with air, you filled it with water, oil, or anything else, fill it completely with something else, <coughs> and then evacuate it without letting anything else get in, and now you have, vacu- you have a vacuum. Really simple. And vacuums are really quite amazing. Just really, really amazing. Um, I mean, the things you can do with vacuums. That's in physics. Uh, so here it is. In this preliminary phase, this is not shamatu without a sign, this is not Dzogchen, this is really getting your mind so it can be a bit serviceable. Let the space of your body be coextensive with the space of your mind. The space of your body, the somatic field, filled with all these tactile sensations, let that space and the space of your awareness be coextensive. As much as you can. In other words, the space of your awareness is filled with the space of your body, and the space of your body is filled with tactile sensations, and they don't talk. That's the big deal. They don't talk. Tactile sensations of earth, air, water, fire, right? Tactile sensations of the breath, they have nothing to say. They're non-conceptual. So fill the space of your awareness with the somatic field filled with non-conceptual sensations, and they edge out any chit-chat. Sorry, no vacancy. You know, like the loo. Uh, or toilet, public toilet. You want in? You want in? He says, no, nobody can come in. Occupied. So, you probably likened your mind to a loo on occasion. <laughs> so, fill it with tactile sensations, which are clean. They're not mental afflictions. You know, fill it there, and then, when you're ready, then release it, and now you've got a nice, open, empty space. Fill that with just your awareness. And now you're ready to do shamatha without a sign. Okay? I've tried that. It works. At least I think so. <laughs> All right, another point. The preceding phase of the shamatha without a sign, as you well remember, was this powerful cognoscopy that is drawing the awareness right in upon your lived experience of being the agent, the one who's doing the meditation, the one in here. That sense of agent you carry with you in all of your daily activities, having a sense, I am, I'm doing things, I'm doing things, I am agent, I'm active in this world. And so you're probing into that. And then Padmasambhava says in that context, right at the conclusion of his instructions, you may even realize pristine awareness. So there he is, he's giving instruction on what he is calling shamatha, Shamatha without a sign. But if you are a ripe one, if you have a little dust on your eyes, if you're well, well prepared, then that may bring you not only to right through your psyche, your ordinary mind, dualistic mind, it may penetrate not only through your ordinary mind, 
it may penetrate right through the crust of your substrate consciousness into pristine awareness. That's what he says. So this is clearly a case, explicitly a case, of settling first in the meditative state, meditative equipoise, and then from that, the view emerging from your meditation. Right? Because he said we have two approaches, right? View first, meditation second, meditative state first, and letting the view emerge from that. Well, he said, I'm opting for the second. That's how it happens. So you may not come to be coming in with a Dzogchen view. You're just coming into the very nucleus of your own identity, the very nucleus of your own awareness, and then puncture right through, cut through. That crustiness, that, that reified polarization of there being a self, a mind, an awareness in here, cutting through that and then opening to this other dimension of awareness, and you enter into lucidity. So not simply greater brightness. As you follow the nine stages of shamatha, and gradually your mind is dissolving, dissolving, one way or another it is dissolving, and you're approaching the substrate consciousness, then in that process, whether you have a sense of developing clarity or discovering the clarity that's waiting for you at the end of the road, and that is the unmediated clarity of your substrate consciousness, brilliant, luminous, unmediated, either way, that's a trajectory of clarity, of luminosity, of brightness, of brilliance, of acuity, high definition. That's shamatha. But as I've mentioned before, if you, again, you're wondering experientially, how do I know? Am I simply approaching substrate consciousness, or am I actually cutting through to rikpa? Am I still practicing shamatha, or have I ventured into Dzogchen meditation? Right? There it is. The trajectory of shamatha is in the context of relaxation, stillness, and vividness, right? the broader context of shamatha, the clarity is getting better and better and better and better. Because right? you're approaching the very source of the luminosity of your mind altogether. You're the source of it. right? Your primal continuum of consciousness, bhavanga, the Buddha called babasacitta, brightly shining mind, in the Pali Canon, babasacitta, here, called substrate consciousness of the very nature of luminosity. So there's one continuum. Insofar as, as you're progressing in the practice, you have the sense of increasing brightness, brightness, clarity, clarity, clarity. Good. Then you're on the trajectory of shamatha. But when he says you may break, cut through, you may actually identify pristine awareness, then clearly that's not just a bit more clarity. That's lucidity. That is now a radical shift a really fundamental, radical shift in your way of viewing reality. It's a, a shift viewing reality from a state of awakening rather than the state of our non-lucid, ordinary state of consciousness. Now, so there's a criterion. That's how you might evaluate. Am I cutting through to pristine awareness or simply practicing shamatha effectively? Now, this raises, to my mind, a fascinating point. In this practice, clearly, he said it in so many words, you're not attending to any object. That is, you're not giving your attention to any sensory objects, any appearances, any sensory object in the environment or your body, nor are you attending to any object in the mind, such as emotions, thoughts, images, or even the space of the mind. That, too, is an object. Right? He said that. So, so that's not an interpretation. He says it, right? So there you are. You're resting simply in awareness, and then, with doing this oscillation, probing inwards, 
you may, having already disengaged your awareness from all appearances, all objects, you may break through or cut through to pristine awareness. But that's cutting through to pristine awareness along a trajectory of a vacuum. And that is, there's two ways of ascertaining pristine awareness. And one is pristine awareness nakedly in its transcendence and not by way of its effulgences, its displays, its manifestations, but simply naked, raw, unmediated, pristine awareness, indivisible from Dhammadhatu, and transcending all conceptual frameworks. If you as and in that way you gain you identify, you see your own face as Dharmakaya, you identify pristine awareness, that is pristine awareness identifies pristine awareness, and that's it. You simply identify pristine awareness in meditative equipoise. But then as you perhaps come out of meditation, if you sustain that flow, you maintain the scent, maintain, maintain the taste, the experience, right, of your pristine awareness, and you come out and you do attend to the world of appearances, insofar as you're sustaining that recognition, that identification, you're sustaining the view. You haven't lost it, you have not fallen back into non-lucidity. Now you're coming back to the world of appearances, how will they appear to you? insofar as, it's not yes or no, it's insofar as you are coming back to the world of appearances and viewing it from the perspective of Rikpa, then you will see all appearances as being empty displays, spontaneous effulgences of Rikpa. And now you continue to realize Rikpa, but also then by way of its expressions. And then if you have that, insofar as you have that perspective, then you must be seeing them as empty of inherent nature. Because they couldn't possibly be effulgence of pristine awareness if there's really out there in and of themselves by their own inherent nature. That's not possible. Right? Any more than it's possible if you're in a lucid dream, you actually bump into something that's objectively real and made of atoms. Not possible. Right? Not in a dream, right? So there are two approaches, broadly speaking just for the time being. I won't say anything ex- that this is exclusive, but I'll say there are two approaches. And one is to realize Rikpa just by going right into the nucleus of Rikpa, not by way of appearances. And that seems to be the approach. I would say it is the approach. When you're just practicing shamatha without a sign, and by way of shamatha without a sign, you ascertain Rikpa. It's not by way of appearances. It's just by going right into the nucleus. right? And he says it's possible. Well, when Ganjan Dugarambache was giving, not shamatha teachings, giving Dzogchen teachings and, and method, practice, that's what he said. You're just resting in the awareness and you are observing the observer. You're drawing it inwards, inward, inwards. He did not say, oh, look at all the pretty flowers and all the appearances and see them as something. He didn't say that. He didn't say that. He said this, awareness of awareness, resting in awareness, resting with no object and observing the observer, going inwards, inwards, into the inter- inner sanctum, attending to the inner sanctum of your own identity, the observer, the agent. And that, he said, that's Dzogchen meditation, having given the Dzogchen view. 
So, to sum up, let's take a really cool analogy. It's the, it's the best one. I mean, it's, it's the best one. It's better than rainbows and mirages and hallucinations and so forth. It's a dream. It's a dream. There are two ways of becoming lucid in a dream. Again, I'm not saying there are only two ways, but there are two ways. And one is, <clears throat> fall asleep lucidly. That is, fall asleep, your mind shuts down, your senses withdraw, <clears throat> and you keep the light on. So you lose your mind. From your perspective, you lose your body. You lose all awareness of, the, of your room, but you don't lose awareness. The light stays on. And you go right into stage four, non-REM sleep, deep, dreamless sleep. And when you get there, you're still awake. So, even if you haven't achieved shamatha, you are gaining some realization of substrate consciousness. Not with the full brilliance, the clarity, the total freedom from mediation that you have when you realize the substrate consciousness by way of shamatha. That's a total unveiling. But you are still seeing, you are still experiencing substrate consciousness, simply with not the full preparation and purification, the dispelling of all the five obscurations that occurs in the shamatha practice. Right? But still... It's still the substrate consciousness. Right? So imagine then that you fall asleep lucidly. You enter into dreamless sleep lucidly. You know you're dreaming. You're aware of the substrate. You're aware of the substrate with your substrate consciousness. That's all that's left of your mind. Right? And then resting there, either intentionally or just spontaneously, then whew, out comes a dream. The symmetry of the substrate, that sheer vacuity is broken. And, and here, you're over, here you are over here, someone in the dream. Here's the environment, people, situations. But since you entered lucidly, then you may remain lucid. In other words, you're lucid from the first moment of the dream. In many, many dreams, we're non-lucid, non-lucid. We encounter an anomaly, and then we become lucid. But this is a way to enter the dream lucidly like a highly realized tuku coming into a life, lucidly. They're already realized when they're you know, just born. They're realized when they're in the womb. They're going, wah! It's a lucid little video daughter going, wah! <laughs> still cries, still has a body, you know? And so, that's one way to enter the dream lucidly. And then, if you do so, then you were awake before the dream started, you're awake after the dream started, which means, therefore as you see all the appearances in the dream, then you know they're not there. There is no reification. If you're reifying, then you've stopped being lucid. If you think that's a real person over there, then you're not lucid anymore. Then you don't know this is a dream. And so you, you know that no one's really there. And in terms of you, you take stock of your own presence in the dream. Oh, here I am. Here's my body. Here's my, here I am within the dream. Well, you know that's totally empty. Totally empty. Hall of Mirrors, just appearances. There's no little person in there who has a lifespan of five minutes, three minutes, ten minutes, you know, the lifespan of the dream. You know there is nobody there. There's no little person in there. Because you are awake. So, to say the same thing all over again, if somebody in the dream, in your lucid dream, if somebody comes to you in the dream, and they apparently don't know it's a dream. Right? Like all the people in the diner, they didn't know and didn't seem to care that it was a dream. They just liked their hamburgers. Right? If somebody comes to you in the dream, and they, at least in terms of appearances, they don't know it's a dream, 
in terms of appearances, they really feel they live here. This is who they are. And they think they're human in terms of appearances. And imagine you're really having fun in this lucid dream. You're walking on water, going through walls, flying, multiplying things. And this person has been watching you and going, whoa, wow. And this person with great timidity, trembling, fear and trembling, comes to you and say, are you a god? Well, be honest. <laughs> you probably could trick him. But you have to say no. Are you an angel? You have to say no. Earth spirit? You have to say no. But when the person says, are you a human being? What he means is, are you a human being like me? You know, I live here. I'm a real human being. I've got parents. I've got kids. I've got a job. got a mortgage. got asthma. Got, you know, I'm a real human being. I'm a real human being. Are you human? Wouldn't you be misleading him if you said, yeah, I'm just like you. I'm human. Wouldn't you be totally misleading him, saying something that's false? Because you in the dream are not human. The persona that this person sees is not a human being. Right? You'd have to say no. And then, if the person is still perplexed, you say, well then, what are you? And you would say, I'm lucid. Which is to say, I'm awake. Right? So, you may become awake in the dream by way of first becoming aware, awake in an, a vacuum of appearances. The substrate. And then from that, become awake in the dream. Or you may become awake within the dream, allow the dream to dissolve, and go and be awake in the substrate, in the dreamless state. Right? Two options. They're both fine. So similarly, one may realize Rikpa just by penetrating right into the core of awareness, breaking through your mind, breaking through the substrate, and going right into pristine awareness, non-dual from the Dhammadhatu, and experience just that, the non-duality of the Dhammadhatu and primordial consciousness, with no appearances, in meditative equipoise, realizing emptiness, of course. And then you may emerge from that and be awake in the post-meditative state and see everything, Lucidly, exactly, I mean, not exactly. Parallel to having a lucid dream. Seeing everything is, ah, this is all my dream. But who are you? Samantabhadra. In other words, we're not going crazy here and going into solipsism. Thinking, oh, Daniel, Martin, you're figments of my imagination, only I'm real. No, no, no way. Not at all. There's no solipsism here, right? So you may have the access there and then be awake here. Or you may receive pointing out instructions or... What have you? You may, in the waking state, that is, engaging fully with appearances, a talopa, a naropa, a dujum rinpoche, a dingukenza rinpoche, a yantan rinpoche, comes to you, and just, if you're really ripe, then just gives you that adjustment. And your whole perspective shifts. And right there in the room, you're suddenly viewing that room from the perspective of Rikpa. You become lucid within the dream. 
And then you may go deep into meditation. If you have shamatha, realization of, of emptiness, then you may go right in and realize rikpa without appearances. You may go back and forth. So final point here, as we're running out of time, is if one really wants to follow this path and not just have a comfortable time meditating and thinking you're a Dzogchen practitioner, then, to my mind, the most robust, reliable way to proceed, unless you're one of those exceptional individuals that just can leap right over, leap over Samadhi Vipassana, become a Vidyadhara, then I simply bow. Leap right over and you know, gain realization of Tukya. I bow. I have nothing to say. There are such prodigies. As far as I can tell, most of us are not, and I can tell you with total certainty, I am not. So for those of us who need a gradual path, then he's laid it out for us in multiple contexts. Get your ethics together, purify your mind to accrue merit one way or another, and then take it step by step. The shamatha. Really become exceptionally sane. That can't be in the wrong direction. Dispelling the five obscurations, developing the five jhana factors, realizing substrate consciousness, that can't be in the wrong direction. right? And if you cut right through to realizing Rikpa, then all the better. But at least, if not, at least you've made major strides in the right direction. And then move on and, re- and dispel further clouds of obscuration, of reification. Realize emptiness. Right. If you're drawn to it, then by all means, stage of generation, stage of completion. Dispel, evaporate these veils of appearances that are impure, appearances of impure karma an impure, ordinary sense of identity, right? Even conventional, let alone reified. And then go for the texture, then go for the tutgel. So you really have something robust that is, I was about to say solid, that's authentic. It's authentic from the get-go. If all you do is you just start up with ethics and purifying the mind and you die, say, well, you started off well. We can never control control when you're going to die. But if you started off with ethics, purifying your mind, accumulating merit, well, then good. And with a motivation, that could be enough to connect you to practice again in the future life, to encountering authentic teachers and so forth. That could be enough. You only practice three days, but with that motivation, just starting up and then you get hit by a truck. Well, okay. You know, worse things could happen. But if you've gotten your motivation down, you've started on an authentic path, then why couldn't you continue? Let alone pure lands. You know. So it's the direction, it's the path. But there are many people nowadays in our very fast, very fast world where people feel they're so busy with other things. A lot of us, I think, a lot of people, really thinking they're following Dzogchen, don't give a whole lot of attention to ethics. They say, well, I'm a nice person. What do I, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, all, I'm already okay. I'm not a bad person. So I don't think I have anything. I don't have, I don't, I don't have any work to do. I'm already okay. You know, so don't bug me. And Shamata, no, that's for Hindus. Or actually, no, I'm a Dzogchen practitioner. We don't do that. You know, we Dzogchen practice, we practice open awareness. Open awareness. We're really, you know, we're way up there. You people that are doing that samadhi business, that narrow tunnel vision, ew, yuck. That's really so inferior. I don't want to go there. <laughs> you know, that's for maybe Sutrayana people or Hindus or other people who really don't know about Dzogchen. So I don't need that. And Vipassana, no, no, that's taken care of. I've got that covered. Dzogchen covers that, you know. Realize, realize Dzogchen, you've got emptiness, you don't need that. And so I'm just going to do Dzogchen. 
I'm just going to skip all that other business. I'm going to stop today, and I'm just going to just sit here in open presence, and I'm just going to mm, be a Dzogchen practitioner. You can. You can. But now, to take the analogy, imagine you're in a non-lucid dream. And you just sit there. Your mind going blah, 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 blah. All appearances being dualistic, grasping, reification, just kind of murmuring along, happily content that you're not bugging it at all. And you're just sitting there in your non-lucid dream. And then you pass out. And you go into non-lucid, dreamless sleep. Then you have another dream. Oh, I'm a Dzogchen practitioner. And then you pass out. Is that going to work out well? Is that really Dzogchen? Sitting there like a marmot on a log? Really? I think Dzogchen must entail something a marmot can't do. Otherwise, we definitely would have had some marmot rainbow bodies by now. So, there we are. Good. Uh, Danny, can I meet you at the door? Hola. So let's continue. Continue in the practice today. And again, this, this expansions that we've done, classic, but they're definitely in transition. In transition to have it develop that spaciousness, that spaciousness. So you all know where we're going this afternoon. We'll finish off the instructions from Padmasambhava. And he's going to say, release your mind into space. Well, we're preparing for that, that when you release your mind into space, it's not going, bloop, <laughs> like, <laughs> like two feet in front of you. Oh. <laughs> You're like in a telephone booth. <laughs> this is it, right? <laughs> Big telephone booth. <laughs> Enjoy your day. I'll see you at 4.30. And the interviews will be five minutes late. Five minutes later.